Welcome to FNT Bible Talk, where we're going through the Bible and showcasing God's glory through His unified story. I'm your host, Felix Birch. On this episode, we're talking about Numbers 33 through Deuteronomy 9 with special guest Nick Godshaw, the uniqueness and nearness of Yahweh and the Shema. Hey guys, welcome to FNT Bible Talk. In today's episode, we want to talk about Numbers 33 through Deuteronomy 9. And I'm honored that today I have a special guest, Nick Godshaw, who's joining us. And I'm going to let Nick tell you a little bit about himself and what he does. Hey, Felix. Thanks again for the honor of uh, being with you on Bible Talk because it's my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> the reason Felix and I have such a great friendship is because he loves to talk about the Bible as much as I do. <laughs> I think our wives got a little bit bored when you guys came down to visit that one yeah. time because we kind of kind of dominated the, the conversation. <laughs> but yeah, I am uh, currently an associate pastor at a Times Square Church Summit Campus, uh, which is the campus of their Bible school, where I'm also the dean of academics. I oversee the program there, courses, faculty. And uh, so basically, I am privileged uh, to do what I love every day. That's yeah, awesome. so really, really honored by that. That's awesome. So if anybody's looking into going and learning more about the Bible, you could always go to Summit yeah, College. Absolutely. And, and uh, we, we have a person in our church, Haley, who's just recently come back from there and she loved it and she's learned so much and she's, her gifts are growing. And so we've appreciated how Summit has invested into her. So anyway, for, so for moving forward, I just want to recap what we talked about last week in, in the episode. And if you remember, we've been going through the book of Numbers and we've been going through all the different stories and really what the book of Numbers is about. As much as there is a numbering of the people, the main focus of it is about the story of the wilderness. And that's what the Hebrew name means is the story of the wilderness, right? So what is going on? And in that story, we talked about Moses striking the rock. We talked about the bronze serpent. We talked about Balaam, Balak, and God, um, and how the emphasis is upon God fighting his people's battles. And moving forward, we're going to enter into the book of Deuteronomy. But before we do that, we're going to close out a little bit of the book of Numbers. And so the book of Numbers and the way it moves is it kind of, it starts off with the focus is on the older generation and Moses and Aaron as leaders. And as the story progresses, you start seeing the focus shifting from the older generation unto the newer generation. And that is really how the book of Numbers closes, because this is who Deuteronomy is written to, or who it's for, is this newer generation of people who Moses is speaking to. And so in, in Numbers 33 through 36, what we kind of see here is we see a lot of retelling or restating of some things that we have already read earlier in the book. We might feel, and I think sometimes this is how it is when we read the Bible in general. We read the Bible and it seems like it's redundant or maybe that it's saying something again and again. But that is purpose. And, and each time the Bible does that, there is purpose, even though that may be difficult to get to. I do believe that the, one of the reasons for this in Numbers is so as Moses spoke to the older generation and talked about how God wanted these things done and, and, and certain things in the order and all the cities, certain refuges and things of that sort. I believe that the reason why he was restating these things at the book at the end of Numbers is because he's retelling it to the newer generation. And he's really just addressing that God is going to be faithful to that again. God is still a covenant faithful God. And that is one thing the Bible is so beautifully displayed, especially through the first few, the first five books of the Bible we've looked into is that God is covenant faithfulness. That's his character. That's who he is. And he doesn't break his covenant. 
And so the story of Numbers begins to shift from the older to the new. And as we approach into Deuteronomy, we're going to see the focus now become on this newer generation and as Moses is going to write to them. So the story of Numbers ends and where it ends is that the people are now camped in the plains of Moab uh, across the or near the Jordan River um, near Jericho. So and, and if you know the Bible and you've, and you've heard this before. As they get ready to go into the book of Joshua, which we'll go into later, but the book of Joshua, that's where they cross over at. And so a lot of this is kind of like the entry point. This is where everything's going to come to the, the, the final moment where Moses is going to depart for them. And so Deuteronomy really is a story of Moses' final, in a sense, sermon or plea or cry to the people. And before we even jump into some of that, one of the things I think that is so amazing about Deuteronomy is that even in the beginning of it, we see Moses talks about how he does not enter into the promised land, but yet he is so concerned for the people of God to enter in. And I think that is something we can pull away for our own lives when we look at Moses's character in this is that sometimes we do not want to help others unless it benefits us. And really Moses, in the sense of him wanting to, the people to go forward, wanting them to succeed and wanting them to go into the promised land was because he loved these people. As stubborn as they were and as um, disrespectful they were to God in so many ways, he still desired them to enter the promised land, even though he was not going to be able to. And you think of all people, Moses could have maybe blamed the people for his own fault and maybe not going in saying, you know, I sinned because of y'all's complaining, but he didn't. And instead he wanted to equip these people, this, this, the people of God, particularly this newer generation to go in and to go in as best as they could. And so he restates all that he's really taught them thus far in the history of it. And so there are several emphasis that we see in the book of Deuteronomy that I think is really awesome to see is that number one, we see the uniqueness of Yahweh and we see his power over the nations. And this is something that has been established so far through the whole Torah um, is that God is alone. He is, uh, he, there's no other God, but God, and that he's unique and his power is over the nations, but it is picked up again. And I believe the reason why these things are reemphasized again is because Moses is trying to teach the newer generation of these things before they go in, right? And so it's not a, um, oh, we've heard this a million times before, and maybe they've had it, heard it at times growing up, but he's really wanting them to say, look, you weren't the people that did all these things in the wilderness. You weren't the ones of that generation, but now you need to know Yahweh if you're going to go forward. And so we see him talk about the uniqueness of Yahweh and his power over the nations. We see him talk about how Israel is meant to be uh, Yahweh's model for the nations. And this is something we see very early in the book or in, in even in the law and all the different things that we've talked about. We even see Yahweh's uh, concern or desire for justice and, and the stipulations and, the, and how the covenant would be done and how the people of God were to act. And then we see the blessing of obedience and the dangers of disobedience for these people. So these are some main things that we see in the story of Deuteronomy. Well, before I ask Nick to jump in, which I'm going to do in just a second, I want us to kind of get a little understanding of what happens at the very beginning of the book. I've already laid out how Moses is the one speaking to a newer, newer generation. He's reminding of them all their, what their parents went through. And so really Deuteronomy 1 through 3 is like a retelling of the wilderness story in, in a sense. And so Moses is really explaining all these things that we've been talking about over the last few weeks and the things we've learned. And he's doing so because he wants to remind them of, of everything that has happened. But he also wants to remind them of the greatness of God. That's what I firmly believe is that he wants them to understand how great the God is that's leading them, the character of God and who God really is. And so it's important for us to understand 
that what God was trying to do is he wanted these people to learn from the mistakes of the previous generation so that when they would go and they would not make these same mistakes that that generation had made before them. And so it's a great, even a great example for us is that when we go into the things in our lives, we can learn from people. We can learn from people who've walked before us. And just so it's an opportunity for us to seek these things out. And so what I want to talk about is really, I want to talk about how God's uniqueness and greatness is really on display because after chapter three, which is kind of the historical moments that we see, uh, the retelling of these stories where God is shown as faithful and great. It's like Moses enters into this moment through chapters four through 11, where it's like he gives this great exhortation to simply obey and love God. Um, He talks about fearing God, but he really emphasizes just obey God and follow him. And so there's in this exhortation, what I want to do is I want to look at a couple of things and, and see what, what God is saying about himself, but really what Moses is declaring to the people about God. So just looking at chapter four, there's a particular, and I'll start off on, on one of this, and then if you want to share some things regarding this. But when I was looking at the sermon that goes through really verse 11, it feels like, or chapter 11, what I was seeing just in the beginning of it is I just felt like that Moses was talking to the people of God to really understand who God was. And so he reveals God's wisdom in chapter four. He reveals his intimacy as God, his mercy, his greatness and power. And really in in verses six through eight of chapter four, we see this, it says, keep them. And so this is Moses talking about the commandments of the Lord. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And one of the things that I was, when I was looking into the sermon that Moses gives is so powerful because this, this verse right here really speaks about God's wisdom and the fact that he's with his people, right? And I'll let Nick kind of bring out some a little bit about how he's with his people and how that might've meant something. It meant, it means a whole lot to them then because of how the Eastern religions and the gods of those days were not near to the people, but I'll allow him to expound on that. But really how in this section, like God's point and the way he wanted these people to live was to show off his wisdom to the world. And I think that's an incredible truth that doesn't just apply to the Old Testament, even though it's there that the worlds around them or the people around them was almost in a sense to be provoked to jealousy because they saw the wisdom of the God these people served, And, you know, that his presence would abide with them. And I was just thinking about in Second in Peter or first Peter, where it talks about how now we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, you know, and now we get to proclaim the excellencies of him who saved us out of darkness and into, and into the marvelous light. It's like this same thing that God has desired. He calls us, he makes us his own. And it's in that, that the, when we live and submit to God, our lives are to proclaim and to let the world see the wisdom and the might and the power of God. And uh, so anyway, I just think it's an amazing thing. Like even like God's purpose and all this, one of the big things that most brings out, is he wants the people to understand like God's way is it's filled with wisdom. Follow God's path, follow what God has shown us. And it will, it'll show off God's wisdom to all the world. And it's the same thing for us today. Jesus has given us teaching after teaching. And when we live and obey and walk obedience to those things, the world will, cannot deny like, gosh, these, you know, and it's true. It's a simple 
simple teaching of Jesus. They'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. When the world sees that, basically Jesus says in John 17, they cannot deny that I've come from you, Father. So when we live in obedience to the commands of Christ, it shows off the power, the might, and the wisdom of God. And so one of the things I wanted uh, Nick to kind of talk about here is maybe some of the, how God reveals himself as an intimate God in this section of scripture in in chapter four, and how that would have meant something so much more to them that maybe we don't understand today. Yeah. You brought a lot out there that was really good. I hope everybody uh, caught that. You know, the uniqueness of Yahweh is central to understanding definitely the books of Moses, Bible in general, but for Moses, it was a major point of discussion. And in chapter four, you already highlighted verses six through eight, but the unique relationship between Yahweh and Israel is, uh, is really paramount. So in verse seven of chapter four, where he says, for what great nation has for it a God near to it as Yahweh our God whenever we call upon him? So he gives them this exhortation in verse 6, observe the law diligently, that's your wisdom, it's going to distinguish you among the nations. But what it comes back to, the basis for that command is in verse 7, look at the way this unique, one-of-a-kind God has attached himself to us and, and made us the object of his affection. He has called us to be his personal uh, representatives in the earth. And you get a similar idea down in verse 34, where Moses says, has a God ever attempted to go to take for himself a nation from the midst of a nation using mm-hmm. trials and signs and wonders and war with an outstretched arm and with great and awesome deeds, like all that Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt uh, before your eyes. So it's like here, you even get this sense where God is so committed to them that he's he is going to war against their enemies. But what you start finding out throughout the Pentateuch, especially after Exodus, is that it wasn't necessarily about God fighting the enemies of Israel. It was actually about God calling Israel to fight his enemies. So there's a bit of reversal there where it's not God coming to serve the people, but it's God taking a people for, mercifully taking a people for himself to serve him, to be lifted out of the, the wickedness, the violence, and the sin of paganism, and the, which was the whole world that they were living in, to deliver them from that and then make them his distinguished ambassadors to the world around him. Because uh, even if you read in, in Exodus, I think it's in chapter 12, he's preparing them for the Passover. He talks about how that night he is going to execute judgment against the gods of Egypt. So in Israel being called and being attached to Yahweh, it's not just that he's coming to fight for them. He's actually calling them, yes, to be, to be rescued, but also to fight in his name, on his behalf, because that's even what the, the wars of Canaan became about. Uh, you know, they were really the wars of Yahweh against nations that had filled up a cup, of, a cup of iniquity because of their practices, and now it was time for the hammer to fall. You know, so there's a two-way street there with the love of God as displayed in, in the Old Testament where he lovingly mercifully rescues a people that aren't even looking for him, uh, that certainly don't deserve him. And then he makes them uh, into an ambassador nation to represent the king of the universe and go out in his name. It's pretty amazing. That's awesome. There's some things I didn't think about with that, but one of the neat things too about this section of scripture is really, and, and this is really going back even to some of the former things we've read about, but really this intimacy that God did have with the people of Israel is, you know, 
you even see it in last week's episode, we were talking about numbers and how Balak would look down and talk about how Balaam prophesied it in a sense that God dwelled with his people. And one of the things I was reading that was so unique about that is that the custom of those days is the way the, 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 the gods of the, you know, the Canaanites and the gods of the other religions around there, their gods did not dwell with their people like that. It was a uniqueness that only Yahweh did. And it spoke so highly of a God who wanted to dwell with his people, wanted for his presence to be in, you know, with them. And even today for us, it is a beautiful thing that God does desire for us to dwell with them. And he desires right. so much that he gives us his spirit to live with inside of us, exactly. to give us life and to live a life that is filled of him. And it's an incredible thing, and, you know, that God truly wants that even with us fallen people. Um, yep. I think it's, it's beautiful. And, and secondly, just regarding the gods of that day, you know, what's so awesome about this section too, is that God does in the book of Deuteronomy and in Leviticus and in Exodus and in Numbers, he speaks so clearly what he desires the people to do and be. It's not a question mark, like what does God want from me? And the gods that the world around them that they would enter into, um, they weren't very clear on what the, what they wanted from their people. It was almost like the no, people, not at when, all. They, when they would go to offer a sacrifice before their gods, they just had to hope their God would accept it. They weren't exactly positive. They didn't really know, but God was clear. And so with God, it's not, God doesn't give us question marks like, or we have to wonder, is God going to accept us or not? He, he knows exactly. He's laid it out for us. And, you know, he's laid it out for the people of God that this is what I desire of you. And even today, there's not a question mark on what pleases God. What pleases God is Jesus. And so when we, yeah. go, you know, we go to Christ and or we go to God, it's not, you know, God, are you going to accept me? Are you going to accept us? He accepted Jesus. He accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. And so if we go to, to God on those terms, upon the blood of his son and, and the lamb of God, we are accepted before him. There's not a question around that, you know? And so it's just yeah. what you see, the uniqueness of Yahweh in that sense. Because yeah, you even see the, the matter of initiative, like who starts the relationship is mm-hmm. really vital to bring in. So the, the pagan gods were easily manipulated. You know, they were fickle. If you brought the right offering, because they were like us, you know, they were moody and, and capricious. They would go up one day down the next. And if you just brought the right offering, uh, you know, you could basically get them to do what you wanted. And the Tower of Babel story is all about that. You know, they, the people are all in covenant with Yahweh because this is now all the family of Noah. Mm-hmm. And so the covenant that God made with Noah is still with these people who go to build the Tower of Babel. And they decide, oh, let's make a name for ourselves and, and let's tether Yahweh to this temple ziggurat that we're going to build. You know, we'll domesticate him and kind of get him to, to serve us because that's the way deities work, right? You know, so mm-hmm. they're still clinging yeah. to this old mentality that should have been washed away in the flood and they're allowing it to come back into their thinking. And, you know, God basically, it's ironic when Moses says, and Yahweh came down. It's mm-hmm. like, they didn't pull him down. They didn't call him. He of his own volition came down to see the towers like, nah, we're not letting this go <laughs> forward. And he, yeah. he scatters them in, in judgment and he disinherits them. And then the very next chapter, he calls Abram and he renews a covenant with another, another man. So even here with, with the story of Israel, God is always the initiator in any kind of salvation, Amen. rescue process. No one goes looking for him. We have all turned aside. All of them. No one says, where is God? Uh, no one thinks about him. He's the one thinking about us. He owes us nothing. And yet he comes searching. It's, it's remarkable. Amen. What a glorious God. Um, and right? so what I, yeah, it's amazing. And so what I want to do is I want to turn to Deuteronomy 6. And this is where I'm really going to ask Nick to share a lot. And, and this is a particular portion of scripture 
that in, in uh, the Jews call the Shema, and it's really Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9-ish. Is, is, it's, a really, it's something that they would highly prize. And, and if you're familiar with even Jesus' teaching, is Jesus himself even brought this out and called this the greatest commandment. Um, and he paired uh, the second commandment with that from Leviticus 19.8. And so this is a really a, a powerful section of scripture that I think we could really look into and pull some things from. It could really speak to us. This is something that the Jews would have recited over and over and over again throughout their day to remind them of these things. And um, anyway, I wanted Nick to kind of talk about it some and, and really just encourage us and exhort us with it. Sure. And uh, feel free to signal me if I start you know, going a, a little too long because if I get excited... It could be like a, you know, a no freight problem. train effect, if no you know problem. what I mean. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> okay. Well, look, I think a, a good place to start, before we start getting into language or, you know, vocabulary, the role of the Shema in the scripture is, is really, really central, more so than we think. So the Shema echoes the fall narrative in Genesis 3, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're reading Genesis 3, there's actually a seed of the Shema planted in that soil, if I could put it that way. Um, so when Moses says, hero Israel, uh, you know, they're, they're thinking they're going to be hearkening back to the fall narrative because of something that's, that happens there. When the psalmist uh, and later the author of Hebrews says, today, if you will hear his voice, uh, don't harden your hearts as in the days of rebellion in the wilderness, in the days of Moses. So that's another time that it's brought up and, and it's being recalled. Jesus, as you said, calls it the greatest commandment. And you find that even in the book of Revelation, uh, the mark of the beast is actually a corruption of the Shema. So mm-hmm. you see this scripture cropping up all over the Bible because it's of such um, incredible importance. With, with Genesis in particular, one of the first things that happens after Adam and Eve eat from the fruit of the tree is they hear the sound of Yahweh walking in the garden and they hide themselves. And the word here is Shema, which is what the Hebrew word uh, means. It means to hear. So in verse four, when it says, hear, O Israel, it's Shema. Listen uh, with the intent to obey. So take this in, process it, let it become a part of you. Let it sink down uh, into your being and and govern who and what you are. So in, in Genesis, Adam, after he eats the fruit, he hears the sound. Kol is the Hebrew word for sound, which is also the word for voice. So hearing a sound and hearing a voice, you can use the same Hebrew words interchangeably. And so Adam hears the sound of God walking in the garden. And when God gets around to passing judgment on the serpent, on him and on Eve, he says, because you listened to the voice, the call of your wife, uh, and rather than listening to what I had already told you, cursed is the ground for your sake. And so what God is showing there, what Moses is showing there as the inspired author is that the reason for sin is because man failed to listen. He failed to Shema. That is the reason why the world is in the state that it's in. So just even to bring a, a contrast with paganism, paganism said that the world is filled with violence and evil because it was birthed out of violence and evil. The gods were fighting and tearing each other apart, and that's how the world came to be. Uh, you know, But the Israelites had a completely, completely different worldview where no, the world came to be as a good place created by a good and benevolent God. And because we failed to listen to his voice, because we did not Shema, we brought corruption and evil uh, into his good world. And so in verse four, when he says Shema, Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is unique, he's bringing it back to 
the one solution to the fundamental problem with the world that, that we live in. And so when you hear that command being given in Old Testament passages in particular, very often, not always, but very often, it's somehow hearkening back to this responsibility to listen to what God says, to hear him. Um, now, going a little deeper into the verse, or the passage rather, in verse 5, where he says, and you shall love. How do you respond to verse 4? How do you respond to the fact that Yahweh is our God and he is unique? He is unlike anybody else. He alone is the Lord of heaven and earth. You shall love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And uh, one thing that's really important to note there, the Hebrew construction for the phrase, you shall love, it is not an imperative. It's not a command. There's Mm -hmm. certain constructions you can use in Hebrew grammar to show that you're conveying a command. But there's another construction that has to do with your volition and your will. Because a command If you're giving a command, I don't care about your will. I don't care about your volition. You're going to do this whether you want to or not, because I'm telling you to and I'm in charge. But in verse 5, it's actually a call to the will. Yahweh is not interested in coercing our affections out of us. He calls us to willingly yield our hearts and our adoration up to him uh, in love. And so when Moses gives this command, He's not just saying, obey, 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 like this drill sergeant kind of thing. He is pleading with these people, what other way could you possibly think to respond to this God? How else would you think uh, to respond to him but to love him with uh, your entire being? And that's basically what heart, soul, and might uh, convey. Heart uh, in Hebrew encompasses what we would call the heart, the seat of emotion and and desire, but it also encompasses your intellect and your reason, because uh, the Hebrews, they, they didn't have a word for brain, you know, so they didn't compartmentalize the way that we do between the heart and the mind. For them, it was all one, it, that inward part of you that is able to think and feel and desire, the soul, that that life-giving force, that living force, rather, that, that was given to you by God, the inner self, and then the might would basically denote any kind of resource, not just physical strength, uh, but even wealth, time, uh, if you will, any resource. If you can, if you can find a way to express affection for Yahweh, then you need to do it. So, really, what you're telling, what you're saying, is that what the Shema was, it was encompassing every part of one's life. Oh yes, everything. Is, is everything there was you. nothing left out. What he was saying here is like, you know, hear the Lord, obey the Lord, but you know, in a sense. All of your life is for God. Exactly. Remind yourself of this often. Yeah, the entirety of your being is to go to him. Like a total devotion. Exactly. It's a a surrender, an absolute surrender. Uh, You know, and obviously we understand you start drawing theological conclusions. We know that surrender is progressive. Nobody can go to an altar one time and absolutely surrender every bit of their life to God. Mm -hmm. You will always discover some part of yourself uh, that isn't ready to tell him yes yet. And you're responsible for dealing with that as you become aware of it. But, you know, so really this is a call that Israel is meant to be answering all the days of their lives. You know, so it's not something they're going to fix then and there when they listen to Moses's sermon. It's a constant call to devotion that they're meant to live under. And that's why verse six comes into play where he says, these words I'm commanding you, they shall be on your heart 
You shall recite them to your children. You shall talk about them at the time of your living in your house, at the time of your going on the road, uh, lying down at the, in the time of your rising up. So constantly keep them on your mind, in your thinking, in your speech. Pass them on uh, to the next generation. Uh, and in verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as an emblem between your eyes. Uh, you know, so your, your hand basically being your, your means of power, your means of performance and making a living, your actions, and then between your eyes, which is the, essentially the forehead, the seat of your mind, your thinking, etc. You know, so all of that comes to bear on the way that we love him and the way that we display our affection to him. It's incredible. Let me ask you this. So a passage like this, when you're looking at this in, in, in today's day, so this was to mean all this for them then, how would you interpret this or apply this to a Christian in today's world? And I know Jesus restates it. So it's not something right. that we just wash away and say, well, the Jews, that was the Jews thing and did wrong. Uh-huh. But Jesus picks <laughs> the same thing back up himself in his own teaching. And exactly. how would it look in our, what is it, same thing or? I th- essentially the same thing, just a few minor on a practical level, a few minor tweaks, if you could even call them that. And when I say tweak, I don't mean change. So for example, you shall recite them to your children. Look, Ephesians tells us pretty clearly, fathers don't exasperate your kids. So it's like if if you're always, always, always making everything a, a Sunday school lesson with your children, they're never allowed to be goofy. They're never allowed to just be kids and have fun. You're going to frustrate them out of the kingdom. And that, that's what Paul warns against. So obviously, any kind of extremism in reading this passage would not produce the result that it's intended to. So you shall talk about them at the time of your living in your house, at the time of your going on the road, the time of your lying down, the time of your rising up. It's like, I love talking about the Bible, but sometimes my wife and I have got to talk about paying the bills and everything. So extremism is unhelpful. So I think with verses four through seven, as long as you avoid the extremism, yeah, you should be applying this directly uh, to your life and obeying this in every way that you can. With verses eight and nine, that's where it becomes a bit more culturally distant. Mm-hmm. Verse eight is actually where the um, the sign of the beast element comes into play. You know, so in in Revelation, there's a warning that in the latter days, you know, the, the dragon, the beast, is going to call mm-hmm. for all people to have a mark on their right hand and on their forehead, and you can't buy or sell without it. Well, that's drawing from the imagery of Deuteronomy six. Mm-hmm. You put the law of God on your hand and between your eyes, on your forehead. But in the, uh, in the end times, and even now, really, it's, there's always been a mark of the beast in every generation. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll unpack that in a second. But what, what do you allow to govern your actions and your thinking? What do you have bound on your hand and what do you have mounted between your eyes, so to speak? Uh, the mark of the beast is ultimately about what you've given your allegiance to. Uh, the, the dragon says, give me your actions, give me your deeds, give me your thinking and your worldview, or I'm not going to let you buy or sell and you won't be able to thrive in the society. But you are meant to give those things to the lamb. That's where your allegiance lies. So we fulfill verse eight as Christians by giving our allegiance to Jesus and refusing to yield it over to the world and, and to the sinful aspects of our society. You know, and this is not just a futuristic thing. The mark of the beast is right now. It, it, there is an ultimate sense of it when the Antichrist rises, and this will have a very, I'll call it a literalist fulfillment, where this is actually going to happen. But there are in uh, places around the world right now and even people that I know personally or have known personally where they lived it, where because of their faith in Christ, they literally could not buy or sell 
in their country because they refused to renounce Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, so you fulfill verse eight in a daily sense by not taking up the, uh, the mark of the beast, if you will, by uh, refusing to give your allegiance to the world and, and not withholding it from Jesus. That's how you fulfill that. With verse nine, writing it on the door frame of your house and on your gates. Look, that does not mean that if you really love Jesus, you'll get like monogrammed decorations like JC all over your <laughs> napkins and everything. And it's, it doesn't require that. You know, you can, if you have scripture hanging on your wall, that's awesome. Go for it. But, you know, really, what is it that governs your house? There are people who have scriptures hanging all over their bathroom wall. They've got 1 Corinthians 13 hanging, on, hanging in the bathroom door, but they scream at their kids over the stupidest stuff because they're so addicted to their phone and that their, their brain is just buzzed out and, and any kind of noise or distraction just makes them impatient. Like, okay, what you have written on your wall is clearly not having an effect on you. So verse nine should not be applied in the sense that, well, I've, I've got nice pictures on my wall of scripture and a picture of Jesus, so clearly I'm obeying it. No, what is governing or ruling your home? How do you lead your family, especially for the men and, and fathers? Like, how are you lead, pastoring your wife and your kids? That's how you want to fulfill verse nine. Hmm. As I was studying this, that passage and, and just this looking into the Shema this week for myself, it, it was really dealing even with my own heart. And as I was looking more into it, I was just really thinking about how much of my whole being is totally devoted to Christ. And, and I believe that that's really a lot of what Jesus was calling the disciples to, to do, saying, fulfill the Shema, but now the Shema, is, is, it centers on me. Like, love me, you know, to love God is to love Jesus. You know, it's like you fight. And when when Jesus calls these disciples, he says to them, you know, follow me, be completely devoted to my life. Let not one part of your life be off limits from me. And and it was really just in my face with this, this prayer where I was just finding myself praying this, the, the same kind of thing, you know, I want to love the Lord God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and, and to love my neighbor as myself. And I was thinking about those things and I was like, this is what Jesus teaching is summed up into in many ways is these two things. And it's like, this requires a total devotion to Christ from my life. And uh, it was just, it was a powerful thing for me to just continuously think upon and just think the other day, as simple as I was just standing, you know, near my, my wife and she was asking me to do something. And of course, in my flesh, it's like, ah, I don't want to do that, you know, but I, I <laughs> yeah. literally, I thought of this passage of scripture and I thought about right. to love Jesus and yep. to follow Jesus is to obey what he said was the two greatest commandments and to yes. be totally devoted unto him is to love him, to love God in such a way that every part of my life is being submitted to him. And then also to love my neighbor as myself. And it, and, and it just, it refocused my thought to say, no, I want to serve my wife because this is what it means to be devoted to God Almighty. And this is the life to live like that. And it just really made me think about even my own heart and the way I was living. And I've just been dwelling on it a lot this week and regarding just everything going on has been such a, you know, life is kind of at a standstill in many ways. Things are, you know, nobody's going out as much. And so there's a lot of time to really dwell upon yeah. our, our devotion to God, our devotion to Christ. It's just a powerful set of scriptures that's really moved me in my own life. But Nick, what, what would you say? So with Deuteronomy 6 and the Shema and everything, if there's any more about the Shema you want to bring out, that's fine. Have at it. But how would you say the rest of the story of Deuteronomy or going into the story, the rest of the Old Testament really hinges on this set of scriptures here? Yeah, 
I, I don't think I need to say any more about the, uh, the Shema. Something you mentioned before that was really helpful when you mentioned about how they are hearing everything again before mm-hmm. going in. That's exactly what the book of Deuteronomy is. The, the name even means second law. Yeah. You know, Deuteros meaning two or second and Namas meaning law. So second law, they're hearing the whole thing again as a new generation and they're about to go in and take the promised land. And from this point on, it's going to get into laws that, you know, have been, I mean, all the law has been fulfilled, but the relationship of fulfillment, the way we, there are different aspects of fulfillment in the life of the church, much of Deuteronomy becomes almost inapplicable to us. You know, I, I don't need to necessarily worry about, uh, you know, whether I, I cook a goat in its mother's milk, you know, that, that <laughs> yeah. stuff doesn't really apply to me. But it does matter if I have practices in my life that are reflective of evil and paganism, because ultimately that was some pagan, obscure pagan practice that yeah. God was like, I don't want you doing that because they're going to, the world is going to think you're just like them. You know, so the way that we relate with it, I, I think that what they're preparing to do has to help us see it has to be the lens through which we read the rest of the book. This is to get them ready to inherit what God has promised them. And I think if you keep the Shema specifically as central, it's like, all right, if I, if I want to inherit or walk in everything Jesus died to give me, there, there's a responsibility of listening on my part that I need to fulfill. But that's not a burdensome or oppressive responsibility because yeah. what I'm supposed to do is love him. I, I want to love him more than anything else. And when you really know Jesus, he's not hard to love. Like even <laughs> even First John says, yeah, even First right. John says, his commandments are not grievous; they're exactly. not oppressive at all. And so, when Jesus says, "If you love me, you'll obey my commandments," there is nothing oppressive about that. There is nothing stifling yeah. about that. Uh, it is meant to carry us into life. It's meant to carry us into conquest and victory because that's what they were about to do. So mm-hmm. the whole book of Deuteronomy is like, I want you to win so badly. I want you to have all of God's promises so badly that I'm going to recite all of this again. I'm going to mm-hmm. make you listen to every word of this just to ensure that you have everything you need uh, yeah. to lay hold of what God's promised you. Yeah. And so there's a lot of New Testament parallel there. Lots yeah. of New Testament parallel. That's awesome. Thinking about what you're saying, it's so true because it's like Moses is almost, I just want to equip you to receive the blessing that God has for you and for you to walk and be the army God has called you to be. And exactly. So he's just really equipping these people. No, I was going to say, that's like in Second Peter 1, I, I was just working with that passage, so it's, it's fresh in my mind. But when Peter tells his audience, you know, in, in Christ, we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's an incredible thought, you know, because so often we get hungry for, and it ties in with Deuteronomy. We get hungry for thinking we need something new. You know, I, I see some kind of spiritual deficiency in myself. I, I don't seem to be what I ought to be. I'm not loving my wife the way that I should. I'm not having the kind of patience or gentleness with my kids that I know I should as a Christian dad. If you name an area where you see that you're not like Jesus, it yeah. won't be hard to come up with something. And yet the reality is you don't need anything more than what you've already been given in Christ. I mean, that's what Peter says. And that's, that's something that makes us a bit uncomfortable because we're used to like, God, we need a new thing. It's like, no, you need yeah. the old yeah. thing. There's only one new thing and it's yeah. already been done in Jesus. What it's really about, what all of our sanctification, all of our growth, the, all of our 
that all of our experiences with the Holy Spirit, everything goes back to what Jesus has already done. We are now appropriating a finished work. Mm-hmm. I do not need anything outside of what Christ has given me. And I think that's essentially what Moses is telling Israel in Deuteronomy. You do not need anything outside of what Yahweh has given you. If Mm -hmm. you will shema, if you will listen to his voice and love him with all of your heart, you are going to go in and take the land. Nothing will be able to stand up against you. And I think that's the kind of mentality that we need to have as the saints. Like, I do not need anything outside of what Christ has given me. There are certainly things Jesus died to give me that I haven't learned to walk in yet and that I haven't experienced or tasted of yet, but that's the stuff I want to go after. So it's not that I'm, I'm some kind of spiritual pauper needing something new. I, I need some kind of new, fresh wave or wind. It's like, no, I've got the wind. I've got the fire. And now it's simply a matter of letting it consume every part of me until mm-hmm. I get to glory and there's nothing left to burn. You know, that, that's mm-hmm. really what it comes down to. Pastor Lee made a statement, uh, I can't remember if it was a month ago or a little bit longer than that, but it was regarding seeing God do things in our lives and seeing God do miracles in our own lives and different stuff. And he was just saying, you know, so many people say, why do I not see things? And he was saying, when we take our, we we just forget that we already have everything we need. We have Jesus, like Jesus is the solution to it all. He's the answer to it all. If you understood the one who lived inside of you, you wouldn't say, why do I not? It's like, no, it's Jesus. If you just understand the person who lives inside of you and go to him, I mean, and, and right. you have everything you need to live this life out. So it was a powerful thought. But Nick, I wanted to thank you for joining us this week. It was awesome. You brought some awesome stuff out of, of this passage that I certainly could not do. And so I really appreciate the blessing you've been for us today. And so anytime, just, thank you for listening this week. I pray that this episode blessed you. I pray that it has encouraged you. And again, we love you and can't wait to talk to you next time. Thanks so much for listening. For more FNT Bible Talk, be sure to subscribe and visit fntchurch.org for more information.